Hey, everybody, we're back with Teach a Kid to Read podcast. I'm Tony, as always, and today, unbelievable, unbelievable opportunity we have to have Dr. Donna Beagle, who has become a friend over the years. We have connected on several occasions, the most generous, brilliant person in the greater Portland yeah. area and around Thank the country. You. So generous. And, um, and the one thing, I'm going to let you introduce yourself, but the one thing just I want everybody to know is you may be the smartest person about the effects of generational poverty, how it happens, where it comes from, and being able to explain it in a way that people can begin to understand that we are all so ignorant of the issues surrounding poverty around the world, but certainly in this country as well. So, Don, anything you want to add to that about you before we get started? Well, you know, living it helps with the, the right. wisdom. <laughs> Having spent, right. you know, 20 eight years of my life, pretty much homeless with five brothers, being the only person who's not been incarcerated. Yes. Uh, my family were migrant labor workers. So living that experience of knowing what does it look and feel like to go to the schools where middle-class people would never send their kids? What does it look and feel like to have the emergency room as your doctor? Um, those right. are all lived experiences that I've had. So combining that with 34 years of research and study and working in all 50 states and other countries to really fight that evil villain poverty and make sure that all children have authentic opportunities to develop their potential. That's who I am. That is who you are. And you've proved it over and over and over again. Um, I just want to go ahead and jump in the deep end with you. Like um, illiteracy leads to poverty. Poverty leads to illiteracy. And these cycles affect both individuals and ge whole generations and whole communities. Can you just give us your insight on the relationship between those two worlds? And are they two worlds? Maybe they're the same world, but I'd just love to hear your thoughts. Well, if you look at the statistics, uh, the national education statistical data shows that one in five Americans uh, uh, struggle with literacy. And yeah. there's an ignorance about that, too. I, I was on a plane and this guy said, there are no more illiterate people in America. And I was like, wow, <laughs> maybe you should come home with me and meet a few because three of my five brothers still can't read and write. And I have many family members who, when they sign their name, they make it X. And I think when you're when you're in the normal flow of a middle class world, it's easy to forget that there are people who don't know the words that are in front of them on the sign, right. who uh, can't can't read a book, can't read a newspaper. So that, that would be me at 26. I couldn't read a newspaper. And right. all through school, I didn't know the words that my teachers would use. They, they were always saying vocabulary that I'd never been exposed to. Right. And, and that would so often get equated to my IQ. And then, well, she's not very bright. She doesn't know these words. Right. Uh, she doesn't know the things we're talking about. So therefore, she's not able to learn. And so it's self-fulfilling prophecy when you don't understand poverty and how it affects your ability to have the luxury to learn. Right. And this low IQ person who now has traveled the world to teach <laughs> untold multitudes of people about these issues, worked with governments, worked with uh universities and institutions certainly has affected uh, a whole generation of leaders around this stuff. Um, I would love, I, I would love for you to, in your unique way to explain, okay, here's a lie that I think is out there. Let me put it this way. There's a lie that child 
plus classroom plus time equals educated. That if, if we can just create classrooms and give open opportunities for children to go there, that inevitably they will become edu educated, be able to read. I'm not talking about their IQ or their intelligence, being able to read, being able to do the basic skills to get a degree. Can you please respond to that equation that I think a lot of people believe? Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. So the idea is that the, the opportunity is out there if you really want it. Uh, and so if you're not learning to read, if you're not getting an education, it must be something wrong with you. Yeah. Uh, we have an epidemic of children from poverty being tracked into special education class because they don't know middle class words and middle class sentence structure and middle class vocabulary. I said ain't every other word. I didn't know when to say gone or went or how people know when to say seen or saw. I didn't know I wasn't speaking middle class sentence structure, but I knew my whole life that people couldn't hear me. And the right. kinds of schools that we went to were those schools where your teachers are underprepared very often, your 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 luxury to actually to, to let all the noise of poverty stop. Uh, you know, poverty doesn't stop at the door. So you've got, right. dang, our lights are going to be shut off tonight. My mom's crying because we've got an eviction notice. My dad, he's worked 12 hours and we still can't pay the rent. You, that noise all comes in with you. So if we're not taking a whole child, whole family, comprehensive poverty informed approach, literacy is a luxury. Right. I think I think people think the only thing that children bring to school in their backpack are books and pencils. <laughs> and in reality, they're carrying in a whole museum of experiences and limitations and hungers, multiple hungers, emotional hunger, relational hunger um, into the room. And then people are like, well, now pay attention. Now pay attention for eight hours and learn what you're supposed to learn and don't be a distraction to other kids. Well, and how, how come you can, how come you don't know this? I remember uh, I was 26 and I was getting my GED and I had uh, some, uh, an instructor, he started talking about Watergate and I said, what is that Watergate thing? And he said, how could you not know this? Aren't you an American? And for the millionth time in my life, I was like, I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know what everybody else, they just seem to know. I guess I'm stupid. <laughs> I just guess I'm stupid. And some of that really ties into social class dynamics. And we're a country that doesn't acknowledge that we are a social class society. Um, we say the opportunities are out there if you want them. Uh, all you got to do is want to get out of poverty. And we don't have an yeah. honest dialogue about the housing affordability crisis, the hunger crisis, the lack of affordable child care, uh, the transportation to get where you need to go when you need to be there, the lack of access to preventative care, to dental care. Human, you know, Maslow, he kind of taught us what humans need to thrive. And in the war right. zone of poverty, those things are not there. So we know that that if a child doesn't learn to read, I mean, there, there were cities around the country that if a kid couldn't read by third grade, they would use that as a, as a database for calculating in 20 years, how many jail beds do we need? Right. And, and can you even imagine like looking at a nine-year-old and saying, oh, shoot, you can't read. Yep. Let's get that cage built. Yeah. Uh, no, we can do better. But there's so, yeah. there is so much ignorance about poverty and literacy, and both are shamed.
so yeah. if you shame people, they don't let you know that they're struggling. My cousin, right. she talks about in third grade peeing her pants because she couldn't read and she was trying to memorize the alphabet up around the top of the room and the teacher was yelling at her for not paying attention and she right. lived her whole life in a car with parents who couldn't read and write uh so so you know this whole literacy journey really begins with with creating connections and supports that allow children to actually focus on on that subject that we're teaching and and have right. it be meaningful and relevant and you know other part of that is a, i have a doctorate in educational leadership and learning theory says if you don't make things relevant people can't grab the knowledge right. so i part of the way i made it through community college after getting my ged at 26 my brother wayne had spent uh 12 years in prison and he learned to read in prison and we have that we have more people in cages learning to read than we do in schools. <laughs> because is that a stat or is that just a dramatic statement? That Well, you have people in prison who are learning to read because yes. there's nothing they can do about the lights being shut off. There's nothing they can do about the eviction notice. Right. Um, right. So, so there they are, and that's what right. you can do. So my brother learned to read. He's more educated than I'll ever be. Um, and so I would be at the community college and I would get a history uh, test in three weeks and I would just write him letters and say, we have a test in three weeks, uh, find out everything you can. And he would go to the prison library and he would research it. And then he would write me back sometimes 25 page letters. And he would say, Donna, remember we were living in that berry camp picking berries. Well, that's kind of what they're talking about here. And he would, he would use familiar language. I used right. to say familiar. Um, he would use words I knew. He would use right. examples from our childhood. So I'm acing my test. I've got a really right. high GPA at Mount Hood Community College, but I couldn't read my textbooks. Uh, I, I didn't, I, my teachers would just send me to the dictionary to go look the words up. Well, learning theory says you don't learn vocabulary that way. You have to be right. able to dialogue with someone who knows that word, who can use examples and make it relevant and put it in context so that you can move it from short-term memory to long-term memory. And I think a lot of that is, is, a, is a big gap in the schools is middle-class examples are used to explain things. Well, everybody knows this. Everybody's been here. <laughs> no, we haven't. No, we right. haven't. Um, so getting at making the, the information that we're sharing relevant, actually removing those poverty barriers that yes. get in the way of, of actually being able to think about reading. Um, those are those are really critical pieces. An another piece of the equation that I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about, and I'm, I'm spending my time with you on things that I think that I think there's misunderstanding about right or wrong. And that is that, you know, what, why aren't these parents, why aren't these parents making <laughs> sure their kid has the resources to learn? Like, why aren't, why aren't you doing your job? That's your job to make sure your kid shows up and has the mental, emotional, relational, mm -hmm. psychological energy in order to pay attention in class and to learn what they need to learn. What, what is it people don't understand about um, impoverished families and communities and generational poverty and how that affects learning? You, your point is so important because we love to beat up the parents. Mm -hmm. We love to beat up the parents. And mm -hmm. what I teach is those parents probably had a worse life than the kids are having. My parents taught me everything they knew. They didn't know how to get out of poverty. Um, they got strong messages from, from the time they could open their eyes that they weren't education material. 
They didn't look right. They didn't talk right. They didn't live in the right kind of houses. They didn't drive the right kind of cars. People like us don't get educated. And that's exactly how I grew up. So I've had people say to me over the last 34 years of trainings, well, Dr. Beagle, my parents love me. They taught me that education was important. Right. So mine didn't. <laughs> my parents yeah. love me, but they didn't know. Why would you go to a place where you're made fun of and ridiculed and humiliated where you don't mm -hmm. know what they're talking about and you never have the right shoes or backpack or haircut? Uh, you're just wrong. So so there's no point in going. And another yeah. key piece to this is tied to uh, Paulo Freire's work. He's a Brazilian scholar who writes about poverty worldwide. Right. He says the United States is the only country in the whole world that teaches its people they are the cause of poverty because there's not an honest dialogue about affordable housing, living wage jobs, access to transportation that can get you where you need to be, preventative care, food, the nutrition to feed your brain and your bones. We don't talk about that. Um, no, and no. so people come to believe they are the poverty and they internalize it as if it is a personal deficiency. So a lot of times when teachers tell me, well, they won't try, they're not motivated. I'm like, I know why. I know what it's like to not have hope and confidence because poverty steals that. I also know what it's like to rebuild that and have people start looking at what you do know and what you can do and then building on that and watch you fly and understanding that what kids know when you meet them isn't all they can know. That's just what they've been exposed to in their context in a, a relevant and meaningful way. So we often have, you know, I, I tell the story, my parents never went to school conferences. And what do we say about that? Most people will be like, well, they don't care or love their kids. My mom would say, I ain't going in there and make a fool out of myself. Those people want to talk about school. What's the point of right. me going in there? So, right. so there's such a misunderstanding of the different contexts we live in and how your context teaches you the meaning. Uh, and and that, that meaning in my doctoral research with students cross race from generations of poverty, I said, what did education mean to you and your family? The number one reply was stress. Mm -hmm. Right. And for a child to have to carry the stress and the shame about how people are talking about their parents or their family or the community they come from. And then they have to walk in and feel and kids, they may not be quote unquote educated, but they're intuitive and they know when they're being talked about or Absolutely. shamed Absolutely. and even by, even by the systems, even by the institutions. It's not you just little kids poking no. at them. There are ways that they feel it from everyone and then mm -hmm. they're expected to perform. Yeah. Well, you, I was doing a, a keynote for a Title I conference. I had 9,000 teachers in the audience. I got there a little early and the speaker before me was talking and she said, I know some of you don't like working with these kids in poverty, but you need to find a way to smile. They deserve a smile every day. And if you can't find a smile, just fake it. And it was my turn to speak. I said, I'd like to give you yeah, some more information so that you actually like the kids because they will see right through you. Right through you, you. you, This is a gift all human beings have. And I bet you every yeah. one of the audience members has had that moment where they're talking to someone just a minute or two and they realize they don't really like you. You know, they don't have to tell you. You can feel it. You can feel right. you're not wanted. You can feel the, the tone of voice. Uh, that we talk to people in the crisis of poverty, just sit in a welfare office, a health clinic, uh, yeah. at a high poverty school and listen to the tone of voice. Right. And you begin right. to see how that internalization and hopelessness and lack of confidence really get 
instituted into our systems. At 26, I thought I had nothing to offer the planet. I can right. be a mom and I'm, right. I'm going to do well at that, but I'm not smart. And, and that's where a lot of kids and adults are in, in, from the impacts of poverty. Yeah. And that, I think Ferrer quote, you said that the United States is the only country that teaches people that their poverty is their fault, that they caused it. And then, and then it's it's also I've I've read other people who have said that the American culture is a culture that actually cultivates shame. That's part of the way the American culture works, and it comes from good-hearted people who wanted like the American work ethic and some of these things. But to actually cultivate shame as a common language for how we get things done is really destructive. Mm-hmm. Well, you have a teacher who uh, I was teaching at this school district and. They were doing my poverty competency assessment and action planning process. And she said, you help me with this 10 year old kid in my class. She said, I've, I've tried everything. And I said, tell me what you've tried. I took away recess. I don't let him have any extracurricular activities. He's not allowed to do athletics. He's still late every day and he will not do his homework. And I'm like, what do you call homework when you don't have a home? You know, and how many people are on time when they're in crisis? So I asked her if I could talk to the kid or the family, and she said, they move all the time. I don't know where they are. I actually found the kid living in the back of a pickup truck with his grandpa. And that little boy made it to school for seven months. And then when he gets there, he gets a tardy slip. So part of what that school district did once they gained poverty competencies and really gained a grounded understanding of poverty and how it affects the capacity for kids to learn, uh, they changed their tardy slips to, we're so glad you're here. That was one of their actions. <laughs> like, you know, you don't have to write a grant for many of the things that we can do to improve literacy and education outcomes. Right. They're right in our hands. But you have to be poverty informed because what we're taught about poverty and the people who live in it, uh, it keeps us separate and it creates a judgmental uh, interaction. And, and my quote from my book, See Poverty, Be the Difference, if you're judging, you can't connect. If you can't connect, you can't communicate. If you can't communicate, how will you educate or do your work? So how do you suspend judgment? you got to get poverty informed because we graduate people from high school and college without the history of poverty, United States of America, right. or without a, even a, an insider perspective. Most of the people who teach and train on poverty They've never been hungry. So they're looking in at people and making a lot of assumptions about why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, go to the people. Ask them what would be helpful. Ask. They know a lot. Just because they don't know how to read, that doesn't mean they don't know anything. Some of the smartest people I know, they can't read. Uh, it has nothing to do with IQ. Uh, we have, we have uh, so many people, so much potential we lose in that war zone of poverty. But if you listen to people, they'll, they'll tell you what they need. We're talking today with Dr. Donna Beagle. You can find her work at www.combarriers.com. You can also buy her book, See Poverty Be the Difference, um, that she wrote, and I own a copy of. Um, Dr. Beagle, there's, there are a couple more things I want to ask you about, and I know you're being so generous with your time, and we're all so lucky that you are being so generous. You dropped out of school when you were a teenager, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then 10, 12 years later, you had a doctorate and were teaching like college students. Um, what, 
so you come in your own discussion you come from generational poverty not situational poverty you may want to talk about that distinction mm -hmm. coming from generational poverty what was it that came into your life what changed the equation for you and that might not be a fair question i apologize if i'm asking it poorly but i'm trying to understand so in in my beagle poverty immersion institutes i teach about different contexts of poverty so there's generational poverty which is the deepest poverty uh, those are going to be the folks who need the most uh, uh, walk me through this walk me through this navigate this middle class system this middle class world there's working class poverty immigrant poverty situational poverty that's the kind of poverty like i had a guy in my doctoral research i was looking for people who experienced poverty who got their bachelor's degree and he said i'll do your study i grew up poor and i said so tell me um how did your family get by he said well my father was a physician he died i was 12. i had to go live with grandparents and i had the right mindset i was motivated and determined i pulled myself up worked in my grandparents store and became a doctor like my dad and i'm listening to him through the context of generations of poverty and i'm thinking you you knew someone who owned a store and you were related <laughs> to them That's not poverty. so yeah. i really began to understand yeah. that we don't have a clear definition of poverty and that's a big part of what we have to understand to, in order to break the barriers but my experience i'm, I'm a fluke uh, the studies show that 83% of children born into the context I was born into, generational poverty, 83% will not get out unless we do something different. And I am I am privileged at uh, age 26. I, I had an eviction notice. I had my lights shut out. I had a six-year-old and a two-year-old. My marriage had ended. And through community action program, I got linked into a pilot program where people really took the time to get to know me mm. and and began teaching me that I wasn't stupid, that I actually knew some things because I thought everything I did was nothing. And they had me write down everything you do in one day and bring it in. And I did that. And they had printed professional job titles, the skill sets needed to do those job titles and how much they paid. And they just started circling things that I was doing in survival mode that were skills on those professional job descriptions so i'm looking at the title i'm looking at the pay and i always tell people you know i got taller every day because i was beginning to see like, i've done some things i'm not stupid and and right. that gives you the hope to really think maybe i i needed that realization and the other realization was the four women running that pilot program they shared their life stories and I had never heard a middle-class person's life story. So mm. as I'm listening to their story at 26, I'm thinking, you huh. lived in one house your whole childhood? You didn't get evicted? You've never been hungry? You had car insurance, credit cards, educated parents? And my mind was exploding. And I'm thinking, no wonder you're on that side of the table. You're right. not better than me. Uh, you're just people you've had different experiences and different exposures and that was the moment that was a, a, a epiphany where i could actually get my little brown pleather diary and write i think i'm going to try to get that ged they've been talking about then maybe mm. i'll be somebody because poverty so teaches you you're not so i because of the pilot program i got access to section 8 housing uh, nationally there's a 10-year wait list for help with housing. Wait lists hardly ever open up. I heard a statistic the other day that um, having getting on a wait list for housing or getting into housing in the United States, subsidized housing, uh, it's easier to get into Harvard. 
Well, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, we have work I to found do. A, I found a quote from you, um, which I'm happy to quote you to you. Uh, people who get out of property, uh, people get out of poverty. It's almost never a program, but a person who didn't give up on them. That's exactly right. It, answer to poverty is people, but it's poverty informed people that are going into that connection as a teacher, as a mentor, as a volunteer, really right. understanding that what people are doing makes sense in their context, that they're doing what they see possible uh, with their experiences and exposures and, and really meets them where they are, not where we want them to be, but where they are. And, and that's uh, that magical connection where you start seeing that we're more alike regardless of our race, right. class, gender, generations. <laughs> we're all the same species, but we've so dehumanized people in poverty. People are afraid of them. Um, I had somebody say to me, they saw the kids on the cover of my book, See Poverty, and they said, oh, those people, they have no love in their lives and they never have any fun. And I said, you know, I was born into generations of poverty and we have a lot of love. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of fun. We just mm -hmm. ain't got no money. <laughs> We're the mm -hmm. same species where you focus will bleed. But right. the, it's, you're, they're not people like me. That otherness really does prevent us from treating people humanely um, and, and adding value when we interact. You know, when you interact with someone, you get two choices. You can add value or you can take it away. Right. Um, so really getting to that place where I see people and I understand poverty is the problem, not the people who live in it. Yeah, there's this Harvard quote, research reveals that children who have at least one stable and committed adult in their life can succeed despite serious hardships. And I think that went on to say, regardless of their background. Right. Um, and what happens when you make those kind of connections is you have people who know how to navigate middle class resources and opportunities. In my doctoral research, people said once they met somebody who was literate, who was educated, who had a title, they got doors right. open that were previously closed. They had somebody to call and say, what does this word mean? Or how do I fill this paper out? Uh, you know, it's really a foreign land. And if you don't have a guide, it's difficult to get through it. Well, one of the one of the ways that you've been a friend to us is we made, you know, we make films. It's one of the things we do. We made this feature film sentence. It's now it's coming out this next fall. We're super excited about it. Um, but we showed you chunks of it because we were like, Donna, would you please be a backstop that we're not making some serious mistakes about how we're revealing, showing generational poverty. And I'm, I don't want to put you on the spot. It's been six months since you've seen any of that footage. So, but um, were there any thoughts you just had on the film, if anything you recall, or just the idea of, of, of exposing people to these stories? And then the film goes on to, to encourage mentorship, you know, that become a friend, become a friend to a marginalized child or to an under-resourced child uh, as, as part of our practice of being human. Well, I have to tell you that I'm very privileged to know your entire crew. Um, it's an yeah. honor for me that you took the time to come to the Beagle Poverty Immersion Institute and learn about poverty. Yeah. And I really believe that that enabled you to hear people differently, to see people differently. When people come to my institutes, they tell me, I see people differently. I hear mm -hmm. people differently. I talk to mm -hmm. people differently um, because you have a paradigm shift when you get informed. So I think what you've captured in, in the sentenced film, which I love, is the, the the humanity 
and the true barriers that people face. You, you treated people with dignity and respect and you really let their voices be heard about their what does their world look and feel like and that's the power of that film it is people who have been impacted by that evil villain poverty who were able to share i'm just a person this is what my life looks and feels like and these are the impacts of not having opportunities and you can see in so many of the 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 characters portrayed in the film they're smart people. They're mm -hmm. really, really smart people. You know, poverty is not an IQ thing. Uh, I'm not smarter than anyone else. I'm not better than anyone else who lives in that crisis of poverty. I'm a fluke. And if we take the time to get to know people, to understand what they do know, and I'll actually give you four, four strategies for building relationships that matter. Uh, that came wow. out of my everybody research. everybody take out a piece of paper and a pencil <laughs> and write down the four strategies okay i'm i'm ready i'm going to go back okay. and listen to this all right the first the first one and this is this is straight out of my doctoral research uh people in generational poverty said once they got connected to mentors that changed their path that enabled them to get to that bachelor's degree so i wanted to look into what are the skill sets of those mentors what are they doing because lots of people have mentors and don't make it. So right. number one characteristic was someone who's making it believed I could too. Genuinely okay. believed that I could too. Someone taught me I wasn't stupid. Just because I didn't right. know words or things that middle class people knew, that didn't mean that I couldn't know. Um, someone didn't judge me. They understood that I'm doing things in a war zone of poverty that may not make sense from a middle class perspective, but is what I need to be doing at that time. So suspending that judgment. And the last one, someone introduced me to other people. They, they right. helped me get connected to other people who could help me in other areas of my life. So if one mentor was helping with uh, math, they introduced him to someone who could help with their housing crisis right. um, and filled their address book with people who knew middle-class words and middle-class systems. So those were, that's it. So when that came out of my data, I was like, why isn't everyone being the mentor? <laughs> why isn't everyone? These, these, these are not big acts uh, to believe in your fellow human beings, to, to teach them that they I mean, honor and respect what they do know. You know, I know how if a car won't start because of the choke sticking, I know how to fix it with a carrot. <laughs> so if you don't know I don't what know. I know, does that mean you're not bright? Um, and I'll tell you, I always say, if there's natural disasters, I'm hanging out with the people who know how to make something out of nothing because they right. are going to be the ones who survive. And right. they know a lot. And and starting there with that strengths perspective rather than what don't they know. And, you know, if you look for problems, you'll find them approach. Right. All of those things really make a difference. Everybody, that is Dr. Donna Beagle. Um, that was gold. That was just end to end, page one to page 50 gold. And um, we're going to go back to this interview the way we go back to other times we've had you on camera. And um, you've just been such a good friend to us and a good mentor around these things. And I just hope that everyone really, um, that they took the time to sit and really listen today. Thank, so thank you for you, all you're doing, Tony. It's it, You're just doing good work. Thank you. Everyone, this is Teach a Kid to Read. Um, and we are trying to put a million mentors in America's least resource schools that maybe a generation 
could have just a little bit more opportunity than they had before. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Donna. Thank you. My honor. Teach a child to read. Give a child a chance. It's as simple as that. Thank you.